0: digital 410 productions proudly presents what's the scuttlebutt podcast with your host don hey
1: everybody and welcome to another episode of the what's the scuttlebutt podcast your favorite world war ii based podcast and um wow it's been a busy couple of weeks as you all know Um, But before I get into anything, let's do a little house cleaning. I want to get it out of the way because I know we have some new listeners and I know a lot of you may not know that not only can you download the podcast each week or each week ish, perhaps sometimes I may only do two or three a month instead of one each week, depending on my schedule and depending on who I can get to come on the show to help provide some quality but i do know we get new listeners all the time and for those of you who think you can only get us at the wtspworldwar2.com and download us manually nay that is not true you can subscribe to us everywhere pretty much everywhere podcasts are offered except for pandora at this point we're on apple Podcasts and itunes even though apple has announced that they are going to discontinue itunes they're basically breaking it off into separate components i.e to compete with google and google music play and google Podcasts and all that stuff but anyhow So Apple's going to deep six iTunes, but right now we are still available on iTunes. We are available on Apple podcast. We are available on Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, ladies and gentlemen, just got back to me after six months of submitting my RSS feed. They are now distributing the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast on iHeartRadio. We've been on Stitcher forever, um, everywhere else. We're out there. I've even found some RSS feeds I wasn't even aware of that's replaying us. So you can just go out and subscribe to us on your, uh, podcast app of choice. They will notify you each week when a new episode pops up. It shows up on your phone. It'll minimize your effort to get the show, and you can listen to it at your convenience. Sorry I'm rambling on. I just got done running. I was going to try to run eight miles, but it didn't work out, and here's why. Here's a feature I did not know aware. Yes, I know this has nothing to do with World War II, but we will get to that in a moment. I just want to get this off my mind because it's annoying the living heck out of me, and that is I wasn't aware that Our friends over at Pandora takes it upon themselves to concern themselves with your health and your hearing. I was wanting to maybe, hopefully, possibly run eight miles tonight. Nay, I got 6.47 miles because at 4.53 miles, once again, Pandora decided i have been listening to music far too long and it kept turning down my volume and so I had to cut my run short but I am wide awake and I am full of energy and so I am rambling on on this podcast. Um, so let's get the rambling over. Thanks to you who have been shopping through our Amazon link at wtspworldwar2.com. Uh, we are seeing some um, evidence that that is taking place. Thank you so much for that. Um, while you're there, click on the um, while you're there as being on my website wtspworldwar2.com. Go ahead and click on the Patreon link, please. If you only join the one dollar month here, that's perfect with me. I don't care. Help us out. Join one of the tiers. There's three. On one's a $1, dollar. One's three fifty. One is $7.50, but I know I go on about that every episode, so I don't want to beat it over your head. Buy the t shirts. We got some new t shirts up on the website. Um, we got our Suck It Up Buttercup shirt. We have the WTSP cross shirt. And thank you so much. So, yesterday, I've been planning this for a while, and this kind of is a crescendo to the end of my reenacting season as we know it, because here in Florida, it is now the summertime. It is way too hot to be uh, dressing up in wool. Uh, a lot of the guys, you know, there was, a, I think there was an event this weekend for D Day. Um, But I got the chance, the opportunity, the privilege, if you will, to do something very cool about a year and a half ago, maybe two years now, um, we were at an event and Jerry Oxley had just taken over the first ID division down here in South Florida. And we were at an event and he had his tent set up and he had his display set up. And the gentleman came up to me and said he was responsible for organizing the army birthday dinner in Tampa each year. And he would really love for us to bring out our display and do, you know, do some living history in the lobby of the Hilton for their dance. And so Jerry and his sons went and did it last year and they set up their display and it was so well received. They asked them to come back again this year. And so this year I tagged along and Jerry built, um, you know, first and foremost, let's just get this out of the way. It's impossible to recreate Utah Beach in the hallway of a Hilton which has carpet that is very reminiscent of the movie The Shining. I was waiting for the little kid to come out and the two twins to come out and the ball and the whole nine yards. That didn't happen and so when you look at the photos you're going to be distracted by the, the outdated carpet. No offense Hilton and Tampa you guys are great but the carpet was a little funky. Once we got there it just hit me like a lightning bolt. As I looked at Jerry and said man we should have got some brown canvas tarps to lay down you know as sand but anyhow Jerry and his son built like three damn near full-size life-size hedgehogs out of um, plywood painted them up we assembled those he had handmade and we reassembled barbed wire traps with bengalier torpedoes underneath them we had a uh, 30 cal set up on the beach we had some he actually went through printed up descriptions for every display he had planned out i mean jerry props to you fella the display that you created in the the forethought that went into it, everybody should be doing this for their displays. He basically made a list of what he wanted each table to have on it, what he wanted it to represent on D-Day, created a whole checklist of what he wanted to have on that table. And the things he didn't have, he asked me and Chris if we had them to bring them to complete his desired display. And he actually went through, printed up nice color signs. He went laminated them, created nice little platforms out of two by fours got out a, a router or probably no more likely he probably ran it over his table saw put a nice little gash down the middle to the, hold the paper basically made paper sign holders of, for laminated signs I can't give it enough props trying to explain it you're just gonna have to look at the photos but the really cool thing was this was the United States Army's 244th birthday dinner ball one of the things I'm glad I did I was talking to Jerry I said like, look you know it's one thing when we're doing these events we've got our displays set up or we're doing a battle reenactment at an air show, and some active military personnel come up and talk to us. It's great, but in this environment, we are at their birthday ball. We are going to have active service personnel, men and women, who have earned their ranks. They have earned everything they have, and this is their night. I so said we should all strip off whatever ranks we have. If you have stripes on your sleeves, let's take them off. If you have, you know, captain's bars, if you're a lieutenant, usually in your group, let's just take it off and let's just We'll wear the uniforms, but we won't have any ranks because I'm not going to go in there with my make-believe rank and stand in front of somebody who earned his and feel happy about it. So once it was said and done, I was glad that we had made that decision. And we were well, well, well well-received so many of these men and women and let me tell you the men and the women were dressed to the nines obviously all the gentlemen were in their class a uniforms for the respective branches now i know what you're thinking don this is the army's 244th birthday party clearly everybody there was in the army but that wasn't the case and for the most part that is true we did see one or two sailors and we did see one or two marines in their dress blues and the women i mean this was <laughs> this was like their night we're talking full-blown evening gowns it was insane just to be in the room. It was an honor. They basically were super nice to us. We were very well received. I talked to, can't explain to how many people. Now, let me just put this out there because I know somebody's going to say something at some point at some time. There is a photo and there's two dummies and they're on a table up against a wall. Now, first and foremost, these aren't your regular Target retail store mannequin dummies. These are Actually, um, I forget the actual name of it. They're like, um, I think he was named like Emergency Eddie or something. This is the dummy that they use to train uh, rescue divers, um, emergency personnel, people who have to get people off of cliffs, um, medics when they're training to properly army carry somebody. We see it in the movies. We think it's easy. No, this dummy is heavy. He's about six foot two. He weighed probably, I'd say 180 pounds, give or take. And it was my job to dress one of the dummies in the 82nd Airborne outfit. And it felt like I was... Actually, there was two of us doing it. Me and the gentleman who provided the dummies. Me and the gentleman who provided the dummies. He actually had one of them dressed up in his modern day his modern day Airborne uniform and gear. He actually had the primary chute, the reserve chute, the helmet. The whole nines was on his man, on his dummy. But the two of us had to dress the other one in my 82nd airborne outfit and it felt like we were trying to dress a drunk roommate after a hard night of partying or a bunk mate and we were trying to get into Reveille for some god-known reason just because the way I am I just had to put the wool shirt on him first before we put on his jacket and I just had to put the wool shirt on him first before we put on his jacket and so like we're putting up one arm at a time sliding the shirt on Pulling the other arm up, there's two of us doing that, sliding the shirt on, buttoning it up, pulling the trousers onto him, putting the suspenders over him, putting on the jacket, zipping the whole nine's web gear, the havert set, wet, the whole nine, what the web gear and the musette bag, that was so hard to lift, eight, 180 pounds of dead weight to put clothes on it. But we did it and I want to say thank you so much to Sergeant Grandstorm for bringing out a dummy for me to dress up in my 82nd Airborne uniform. Furthermore, thank you for your service and all you did. Um, it was such a pleasure. And thank you so much for helping us set up our display. Thanks for getting it, helping us getting it done. You didn't have to do that. It was um, very cool of you to join in and help us get our display set up. Thank you so much. So I brought everything I have. Now, unfortunately, I don't have a parachute for it. But what I did do was put the haversack on it, flipped it forward so that the haversack is full on his stomach. And it kind of looked like his reserve chute. And he's sitting there next to it. Now, for the diehard living historians who say, well, that's Farby. Everything in there is D-Day, and then you have a modern day. I don't care. It was so cool to see all the active personnel from the Airborne go over there, especially those from the 82nd Airborne, and look at these two, and being able to contrast and compare the modern-day uniform and gear. Because, once again, his dummy had the parachute, the full jumpsuit on it, the helmet, and then compare it to the uniform of the 82nd Airborne 75 years ago. And that... That little section, as far as some of you may think it is, was a huge hit. People were taking pictures with it. People were taking pictures, pointing to the 82nd Airborne patch on my, the sleeve. And it's cool to me because that uniform's mine. I've only worn it twice. And it was so cool to see people who are active day, airborne, military, the way they reacted to that the way, when they saw it. They thought it was so cool. And the coolest thing about the evening, and Jerry and I were talking about this at dinner, as reenactors I often think about well what does the real guys the real deal holy fields what does the real active service personnel think about what we do are we a joke are we offensive do they find what we do playing an army and see it as disrespect because we're not actually doing it and earning the stripes and all that and so when I went I was to be honest I was a little not nervous but I I just had it in the back of my mind is like is there a possibility that somebody might say something like, you know, what's up, make-believe? You know, I I, I don't know. It, I would be lying if I didn't say it was in my head. But it didn't happen. Not only did it not happen, we were thanked. Um, they were so appreciative of what we were doing and the efforts that we went through to preserve the history of not only my grandfather's generation, not only of World War II, not only of the Army But yeah, the Army, not only of the military, but of the Army of World War II. Here are, basically, we are in the heart of modern-day Army. This is their birthday celebration. This is when they hand out awards, promotions. I don't know what all they do back there because that was their thing. I'm out in the lobby. Once the doors are shut, I have no idea what went on. But it was a huge night, a big event for them. And they thanked us for being there. They loved our display. And matter of fact, most of them couldn't believe that that wasn't a mobile museum. One of the questions we got quite a bit was, where does this stuff usually reside? What museum does this stuff belong to? And I would have to tell them, that guy down there, 96.5% of this display, everything in this room, belongs to that gentleman. I brought a few things. Chris brought a few things. His, you know, But majority of everything you see here goes, all the credit goes to Jerry Oxley. And they couldn't believe the effort, the energy, And the amount of passion that goes into collecting all this stuff, preserving it, keeping it out of stores, keeping it out of hot garages or in dirty barns, keeping it from getting sold off and just not seen or just vanish into, you know, dirt, dust. And for me, it was very gratifying, but it was also like a stamp of approval. I you know I told the story once before when I first met my friend Stan and he found out what I did. He was a little put off by it cuz he always thought that reenacting was once again kind of like a an insult to modern day personnel and to you know those who fought and died in the war cuz he kind of thought we were you know unjustly reenacting their death just for fun or for attention. But it wasn't until he got to know me and saw everything we go through. To honor our, our our vets and those who were there, and actually saw that I read all my books, of World War II, and he's got me so many books for my birthday and Christmases over the last few years that he started to understand that reenacting isn't an, an insult. It's not a mockery. For the most part, yes, there are a few turds out there who make us all look bad. You know, it's everywhere you go, literally everywhere you go. I mean, I've seen some places. But anyhow, um. To have high ranking officials from the modern day United States Army come up to you and say thank you for what you're doing, this is beautiful, it means so much for us that you're preserving history and trying to preserve a quality name for the Army both then and now, to me that was a stamp of approval. That was him basically authenticating what we're doing. So now any smidgen of a thought that I may have had in the back of my head about the legitimacy of what we're doing is gone. By being there last night for that event and having the reception that we got from the people that we talked to legitimized what we're doing. And that in itself made traveling from Cape Coral, Florida to Bradenton, transferring from truck to truck, driving from Bradenton to Tampa, taking three and a half hours to set up this display, hanging around for an hour and a half, taking two hours to tear it back down, and then driving home in the rain, made it all worth it. And that's why we reenact. That's why we do Living History. And that's all the thank you I needed for doing last night, is knowing that what we do, is legitimate.
0: Chesterfield? Chesterfield? There you are, sir. Yes, Chesterfield smoke so mild. So mild, they satisfy millions. So mild, they'll satisfy you. Hey. Always milder. B. Better tasting. See. Fuller smoking. A, B, C. Yes, A, B, C. Always buy Chesterfield. They satisfy. green.
1: Dr. Harry Cover, then working for Kodak, discovered that the chemical mixture he had used had an incredibly strong bond, so much so that once stuck together it was very difficult to separate. Having abandoned the mixture as it wasn't what he needed for his current project, his failed compound only resurfaced on the civilian market in 1958 under the new name of superglue. a full 16 years after its initial invention. And joining us now, he's known here at the museum as Gunny. Mr. Perry Monroe. We just got back from a USO show. It's a great time. It's late in the evening, but it's nice and quiet here now. Mr. Monroe, how are you doing? Great. How long have you been working here at the National Museum for the Pacific War, or more importantly, the Pacific Battle Zone? Well, I really wouldn't call it work. Okay. It's something that I love to do. I started about 10 years ago. Fantastic. Whoop. Let's get a little background on you. I know you had some military service. When did you enlist, and uh, how long did you serve? Kind of ironic. This day
0: today, 40 years ago, I stood on the yellow footprints at San Diego, California. My total career lasted 24
1: years, retiring as a gunnery sergeant in the Marine Corps. And so the title of gunny isn't just something someone bestowed upon you here. You actually earned that title and you wear it proudly yes you could say that yes fantastic thank you so much for your service how did you get involved in living history did it come after your time in service or did it come when you started volunteering here well when i was younger before i joined the military i had done civil war
0: reenacting okay but i had always loved world war ii because my father served and my grandfather served in World War II, and I kind of wanted to honor their service. Sure. And when I retired, both from the military, from the Marine Corps, I decided, before I get too much older, mm-hmm. this is what I want to do. I want to get my feet wet, so to say. And when I discovered the Museum of the Pacific War, it was just a perfect fit.
1: Yeah. Now I understand Jeff took over in 2017, but you've been around here for 10 years, so you've seen the program uh, grow, you've seen changes made, you have seen you were here back when the original layout, or I guess the first version of the Battlefield layout, and you have seen things change dramatically, or substantially for that matter, um, what can you kind of lean uh, loan towards how things have changed for the better, um, how the program's grown?
0: Well, back in the old day, our program was Marine Corps-centered. We did the landing at Tarawa. Now, with the program that we do, it covers all the branches because it's not one island, not one campaign. It's all of them rolled into one so the public can actually get a taste Sure. Of what these men went through in the Pacific.
1: And it would be unfair to the Army to ignore their contribution to the Pacific War. I mean, a lot of people who aren't familiar as in-depth as we are with the Pacific Theater of Operations, they just, oh, that's where the Marines were. But it was so much more than that.
0: Oh, no. That's what they don't realize. It was Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Merchant Marine. Seabees. And Seabees. It was a, a total war that the home front and America came together, united mm-hmm. to defeat the tyranny that they saw.
1: And one of the beautiful things that the museum has done is they. Like, when you walk through the museum itself, before you even get to Pearl Harbor, there is a huge background on the Japanese Empire and how everything came to build up to Pearl Harbor, you know, um, the, the, the Bataan Death March, Guadalcanal, and, and all that. So they did a great job providing as much information as possible about the history of the Japanese Empire and what led them to gain the power in which they had the time they got around to where they felt they were up against a wall and they had to attack the sleeping giant in order to um, free up some natural resources because they were getting dramatically low on oil and other fuels and they kind of only had one way to go. Again, that is what
0: people don't realize in, in history. It's not, I want land. Yep. It was an economic war. Mm -hmm. They went into Burma for rubber. They went into China for coal. It was a war of resources because in 1928 at the Treaty of Versailles, Japan had been snubbed by its allies, and it walked out. Sure. And it felt it had no other recourse.
1: And, of course, with an empire that has the history and the longevity that it had, it probably also, like you said, felt snug because here they've been around for a long time, and then as far as they can see, here's some new players coming to the table. You know, United States is extremely young at that point, and so they're like, well, hey, what, what's the deal? You know, we're, we've made some demands, and everybody seems to be getting their piece of the pie, but we're not getting what we want.
0: Yes. Japan had been... So overlooked as an ally that they felt there was no other recourse than to take it, sure, because the people who had they thought had been their allies had literally taken away their livelihood mm-hmm. and with that, we ended up in World War two
1: and their conquest basically almost started out if they're the Germans, like a blitzkrieg, their conquest, they were steamrolling. They were just winning, winning, winning. And so when it came time where, you know, the Marines showed up at Guadalcanal, they just, oh, this, this will be easy. We've been here a long time. We have fortifications set up. We have all the islands surrounding it. We have all the air power. And so they just kind of thought, well, this should be quick.
0: Again, that was one of the misconceptions America had coming into World War II as a whole. Yeah. The secret had been our code-breaking ability. Midway was the turning point. Had we not found out that AF meant Midway, we would not have had the carriers in place, the men in place, and Midway would have fallen.
1: And our intelligence officers, they actually played a good strategic test game because they... They said okay we think af refers to this but we need a way to prove that so let's put a little deception and that was
0: well what they did is they said okay broadcast in the clear from midway desalination plant inoperable and let's see what happens and sure enough in the japanese code af Desalination malfunction which said taking the risk even then AF has to be Midway so Nimitz moved his carrier task force into place and at the Battle of Midway we sank four of their carriers and did what they could not do to us
1: at Pearl Harbor. And unlike us they didn't have the industrial strength cuz once again they're limited on natural resources. And so when they lost that many that amount of their ships, that that had a huge change in their whole naval operations. At that point
0: it was not even maintaining equality. It was a continual loss because we were finding their weaknesses. We were finding out how we could get the upper hand it's like for example truck lagoon was referred to as the great turkey shoot mm-hmm. because so many ships were caught there unattended there was no air power so we sank so many of their vessels which further put them behind
1: and as stated before they had such a foothold in the air they had Grown to know how to survive in the in the environment, and one of the things they had going for them, or at least they thought, is especially when we land on Guadalcanal and they sank the George S. Elliot and we lost a lot of our supplies, and the Navy pulled out and left the first Marine Division on the island with pretty much out anything. Oh, once again, they're under the assumption. Well, this will be easy. Now they're here. They don't have any supplies. We have you know the history of surviving on the island. We know how to make it work. Clearly, the Marines don't, but luckily, Marines do what they do. They adapt, they overcome, they find rice, and they they make it work. Well,
0: the Japanese, their downfall almost. Their arrogance? They went back to their past history. Mm -hmm. They went to the Code of Bushido. Mm -hmm. And with that, they were fighting a 16th century battle with 20th century men. And because of that, they thought, for example, the bonsai charges.
1: Yeah, they just thought they'd overwhelm us with numbers.
0: No. If you have ever read the book, The Hagaku, they had as an example, one warrior, 200 of his men stood out in front of the force, committed seppuku in front of the opposing force, the opposing force was so terrified they surrendered. Yeah. They thought in doing the bonsai charges, we would be scared and would capitulate. But they didn't realize America's resolve mm-hmm. that we would do the impossible in their mind. And that was their downfall.
1: Exactly, because if they didn't have that mindset that early in the war they had they had the strategic advantage. They had the islands. They clearly had the numbers. I mean, the amount of men they literally just threw at, literally threw at them. If they would have had a different mindset and maybe used their manpower a little more strategically instead of just using them as cannon fodder for the most part. And, you know, when you're having bonsai charges in one night and you're losing thousands of men up against hundreds, it's just nowadays, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but it comes down to their... Their mentality is just such a huge waste of human life and resources.
0: Again, I agree. That was the one downfall why, at the very beginning, we saw the Japanese as inferior. Mm -hmm. But they actually had the manpower, the skill, the tactics and that's what blindsided us why Wake Island fell, Guam Island fell, why, you know, it was like one after another because we underestimated their ability.
1: Yeah, and I mean, just look at their engineering ability. The bunkers they would make with the partitions to separate the rooms, that if someone threw a grenade or a sound charge in through one window, hypothetically, it wouldn't affect the other side with the exception of, coming in the flamethrowers and snuffing them out either through heat or through suffocation. Well, even if you look at their aircraft, they took minimal
0: material Mm -hmm. and built the maximum. The Zero had such quality that it took us literally to design the Corsair to compete against that craft because what we had in our arsenal at the beginning of world war ii could not meet that envelope that the zero fluid and when we built the corsair and further craft we finally found their weakness
1: well the zero had speed but it had no armor at all just aim for the cockpit take them out yeah now, getting back a little bit to what we do here, don't get me wrong. I love the history side of this. What is your key role when it comes to putting on these events and uh, getting the guys to what they're supposed to do and actually, because well, a lot of people who don't participate in living history, and I've said this in the past, we are putting on a show. What you know, it's a play. You know, we have a plan. Doesn't always go through, but we have a set idea of how we want it to appear. Where groups of people are going to go. And that's why, you know, once again, to the outsider looking in who doesn't participate in living in history, the reason we have ranks, obviously, there's ranks in military, but when you have a large contingent of guys, you need a rank just for logistic purposes. Otherwise, you're just going to have 20 guys talking nonstop and too many chiefs, not enough Indians, or too many cooks in the kitchen. Whereas if you have a rank system, one, obviously, we need one because we're portraying the military. But when it comes to what you, especially what you guys are doing here on a timeline, you're putting on shows that are set at a certain hour. They need to reach a certain timeline as far as how long it goes. And it has to look like we know what we're doing.
0: Well, what I do is I bring my Marine Corps training to bear. My last military occupational specialty was O-369, platoon leader in that i'm not going to micromanage these men i have squad leaders what i do is i tell them okay in this program we're going to run to this point at this point i die you have to lead you have to take over i treat everybody as i would an active duty marine sure and I give them the leadership skills, the leadership principles that my squad leaders are not just squad leaders in name. At the point where I die and the unit splits, the squad leaders know their task. They lead from the front just as they would in the Marine Corps.
1: Now, one thing I really haven't touched on this weekend in these interviews is, yes, we do a reenactment, but that reenactment's only 15 minutes of the program. How long is... It's like almost, what, an hour long, a 70-minute program, give or take? About that. So, if 10 minutes is the reenactment, you guys have put a great amount of effort in designing a living history program. The, the reenactment itself is kind of like the cherry on the cake.
0: Exactly. And
1: you and I were talking beforehand, and... One of the other roles you have, other than just trying to get the guys to go and do what they're supposed to do, is you actually have a speaking role during the living history portion of the show, where they do the weapons demos and all that. And you and I were talking about how you have taken the time to discover a Marine who did some amazing things. And the definition of self-sacrifice, and you're like... I need to tell this guy's story. I don't need to tell Basilin's story because it's already been told. I don't need to tell Eugene Sledge's story. It's already been told. And you have this well-rehearsed, well-delivered story about this gentleman. So if you don't mind, just give us the quick um, cliff notes of, uh, you know, just do your presentation right here. Well, the person who I exemplify,
0: his name was Gunnery Sergeant Warren Goodwin. He enlisted in 1917, fought in France in the various campaigns. His first sergeant, as any Marine knows from history, was Dan Daly, two times Congressional Medal of Honor recipient. What I don't tell the people, Gunnery Sergeant Warren Goodwin in World War I personally was awarded the French Faux for bravery, and he also received the American Purple Heart. By the time World War II came around, he was one of the true old breed men who had dedicated their lives to the Corps. Because of his age, his men called him Pappy. And in further researching his life, the age he was when he was killed was my age when I retired from the Marine Corps. And he had no family. To mourn his passing when he was killed on Iwo Jima now I'm also a gold star father my son was killed in Iraq in 2005 so by me telling his story I get to mourn him as if he was family
1: would you mind telling that story for our audience as if you were telling it in front of the auditorium like you did earlier today
0: not at all I'll start from the beginning, how I tell them. Sure. I introduce myself as I am Gunnery Sergeant Warren Goodwin. I enlisted in 1917, joining the Allied Expeditionary Forces to go to France to fight in the various campaigns. At the Battle of Bella Woods, my first sergeant yelled at us, come on, who wants to live forever? After that, I was sent to the Nicaraguan campaign and then to China. In 1938, I returned to America to join the 1st Marine Division as part of the old breed, men who had dedicated their lives to the Corps. During World War II, my first campaign was the Battle of Guadalcanal. There, one of my Marines had exclaimed during one of the battles, Hey, Pappy, they're shooting at us! Well, I replied back, well, what do you expect? you think they want to kiss you? Well, after Guadalcanal, they sent me to the newly formed 3rd Marine Division. There, I fought in the campaigns for Bougainville and Guam Island. After that, they told me they wanted to send me to the rear echelon, but I told them, shoot, I just extended for another two years. Give me one more campaign, just one more. Well, on February 19th, 1945, I got my wish. We landed on the island of Iwo Jima. Well, on February 24th, while leading two battalions of Marines, Gunnery Sergeant Warren Goodwin was shot by a sniper and evacuated to the hospital ship Solace. The following day, he died of his wounds. I. I'm a United States Marine.
1: Now, for those of you who listen, let that sink in. He was there during World War One, saw some of the worst of it. Landed on Guadalcanal, as we stated before, the George S. Elliott sunk. The Navy pulled out. They were there for weeks, a little over a month before they got any resupply. Then he goes to Bougainville as we stated in the past part of the turmoil fighting in the pacific war yes the japanese were a formidable foe but when the japanese weren't firing at them mother nature was coming at in full force and bougainville is known for the mud the trench foot the flooding he survived that and still wasn't convinced that he'd given enough That he had done his duty. And he wanted one more go. That's the dictionary definition of selfless. Of honor.
0: That's a marine.
1: Through and through. Through and through. And I think it's fantastic. Not only do you deliver that speech every eight times a year that you've committed it to memory But you tell it with such a passion, you're not just rambling off words you memorized. You clearly have admiration for this man, for this Marine. And it definitely comes through in your speech, your delivery. And I definitely know the audience feels it, and they can see it. Now obviously the speech could be longer, but once again, there's timelines. And you're Delivering the most important parts to the audience in the time that you're allowed.
0: Exactly. That's the thing. Giving them that kernel of knowledge. Let them know that there are other unknown men out there who had given their all. That went beyond that what we hear in the Pacific and things of that nature that this is true history.
1: And I think one of the other benefits, if not privileges, you have, obviously working on this facility, that in itself is a huge privilege, but because of the name that this facility has earned for itself, the veterans that we're lucky enough to still have with us they kind of flock to this place, almost like a mecca. Now, most of us reenactors will go out to an event, or maybe one guy who comes with his family, um, maybe two. But as for example, today, honor flight came. The uh, San Antonio audio flight, uh, San Antonio honor flight came with 15 veterans today, plus your semi-resident veteran. You have access to so many people. You get to shake their hands. Talk to them, listen to their stories if they're willing to tell it. And if they're not willing to tell it, they can see the passion in your eyes when you thank them for their service.
0: Here's a story that happened to me. This was about five years ago. This was in our old program. And I was doing much what I do, but we didn't do the talk of who I was. But I got that out there on the battlefield and then we had a meet and greet with the audience. I had a World War II veteran come up to me with tears in his eyes, looking over my shoulder at the American flag that we had raised. And the only words he could say is, that's exactly what it was like. That's exactly what it was like. And he hugged me with tears in his eyes with that emotion that we had honored his sacrifice, his duty and done it the right way.
1: And as a a living historian and a Marine yourself, there's no better reward than that. That's exact. I mean, we all say we're doing it to preserve history, which is true. But we're doing it to honor those who can't tell their stories. And so when one of their comrades who survived, um, one of the heroes, even though they all say they're not heroes, the heroes of the boys that never came home, but we all realize they were in fact heroes. When they come to you and so openly show their emotion and their appreciation for the program that you're doing. That's it. What more do you need?
0: That's it. Well, again, it is, for me, their appreciation is wonderful. But to me, it comes from the heart. Sure. That I want to share that knowledge. I want them to know these men that are now nameless that in what we do they get a taste of what they went through for years not just minutes
1: earlier tonight when we were at the um, USO show I was talking to the Living History Program Director Jeff Copsetta and he was talking about how great your volunteers are, Company K and the fact that a lot of your guys come, they volunteer their services. As they get older, they go out and enlist. And when they come home on their shore leave, they sacrifice their time and their family to be here. And then you have other guys who, you know, who may not be in service, but they live a few hours away, but they always make sure they come here. And you have a consistent group of guys, and he is so blessed on how dedicated they are to this program and what they're willing to do to make sure that the show gets done. And I'm sure you uh, feel the same way.
0: Exactly. It's not like this is around the corner. For me, this is a two and a half hour drive to get here. And we have some that drive up to five hours to come here that they feel so passionate, so dedicated to this program and especially with the program that Jeff has revised and invigorated that we bring to the field twice the number of what we used to and they love history. They they look at it like a bone and they want to suck the marrow out of and we'll talk about history things. Did you know this? Did you know that? For example, we had on a TV screen and a picture of Pappy Boynton popped up. Most people do not realize he's one of the few people to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor posthumously while he was alive. How this happened is that when he was captured,
1: Missing in action.
0: The Red Cross, he was never reported to them, so he was presumed dead. So he was awarded it posthumously, only at the end of the war to be found in a POW camp. But it's stories like that we have to tell because we do such an injustice to their memory, their sacrifice, if we don't.
1: Well, and that's one of the things I was talking with Aaron about earlier, and I talked to Jeff a few weeks ago. One of the nice things you guys have going with your program is because you have your quartermaster room with all the uniforms, all the gear, It allows for younger cats to come in here because the biggest barrier to entry for reenacting is the cost. Exactly. And so because you have the equipment available to them, you get a lot more younger cats than normally you see at a reenactment event. Usually most of us are late 20s, 30s, 40s, and older. But you guys have a lot more younger guys, and that's got to kind of instill a little confidence in you that the next generation, at least in San Antonio and and Fredericksburg, is stepping up and they're going to carry this torch long exactly. after we're all gone
0: we, we want to bring in new blood because if you don't if you don't extend out to the youth in public displays talks you your unit will die off mm-hmm. pure and simple you have to be in the public eye and As a reenactor, like you say, it costs so much. Mm -hmm. And giving these kids the opportunity, we'll feed you, we'll clothe you, we'll give you a gun, we'll give you an ammo, we will house you. All you got to do is show up. That experience for even one day is priceless to their memory and priceless to their knowledge of history.
1: And it's it's important, you know, that we do this. Um, I know for you, the war wasn't that long ago. For me, it wasn't because my grandfather was there. Um, and so when I look at history, eh, World War II went a long ago because I know people who were there. But as that generation leaves us, and then as we get older that timeline gets further and further away, much like World War I has gotten further and further away, Civil War has gotten further and further away, etc. You know, because obviously, reenacting, sure, not in the modern form, but in the storytelling and the recreation, going all the way back to the Native Americans and their dancing and telling about their ancestors, that in itself has been going on forever. It's just in different forms. And as the technology changes... The storytelling changes, but in order for the history to stay as correct as we can, even though you know we're kind of playing a telephone game, but our job is to make sure that the telephone game stays accurate and not lose its, its truth, it's more and more important for us to try to share that wisdom and that knowledge that we learn firsthand through reading or, in, in the case of, like I was saying earlier, your um, ability to interact with veterans it's even that more dire and important.
0: Exactly. I try to tell people there are three levels of research when you're looking to do something. Number one, and the least reliable, are photographs. Because we do not know the context the picture was taken in. I have seen books with multiple mislabeled pictures. Mm -hmm. So... You can only take pictures to a certain point. Then you have books. Books are good to a point, but depending on the pictures, again, mm-hmm. you create pictures in your mind that may not be true. Because what he may call a boondock might be a logging boot or a A jump boot. But because that's what he called it, we're doing it wrong. The best evidence for what they did, how they did things, are the battlefield footage, movies shot. When you see the men, what they're wearing, how they're running, what they're doing, that is what you have to do as well.
1: Yeah, and and I never really thought about that before, but it makes perfect sense, especially somebody who worked in terrestrial radio for five years and did a lot of website stuff. When it comes to these books, the authors don't always do the photo research. That's the job of the editor and the publishing company. So they have a book, they got the content, now they need to find some pages. The author may not even see those photos or even have the ability to sign off on them. That's someone else's job, and their job is to provide content for this book and they may unknowingly know that it's incorrect or they may knowingly know but once again I got pages to fill so we'll just call this shot that's from Tarawa Iwo Jima or vice versa you know and so that it it's, and once again mislabeled we know from a podcast I did four or five episodes back that uh, there are famous wartime photographers who are known for not filling out their cards after they take each photo. They just send in the film and not really anything labeled. So it's up to the person who develops it and prints it to try to do their best to figure out where he was on that day and put a time and a date stamp on it. But it's not always true.
0: Exactly. When you have a book with multiple misidentified photographs, To me, I have to question the author's ability to write, because to me, if there is something written below the picture, that is just as much coming from the author as it is an editor.
1: And a perfect example of that is, and we see it now, especially with the internet. I remember like a year ago, I was following somebody on Instagram, they posted a picture of a Marine during World War II with a kitten, but he had on Korean War era boots, and I'm That's not World War II, that's Korean War. Look at his uniform. <laughs> but they don't, you know, people don't, they just, oh, they just make assumptions based off of a helmet and the web gear, but they don't look at the boots and the, uh, the blouse and all that.
0: Well, what's sad, and I've seen this in other areas, people, for whatever reason, will Photoshop, do things to photographs, to stir the people up. And someone with a good eye will notice, wait a minute, the shadow Mm -hmm. doesn't match. No, this is not a firing squad because none of the guys have got rifles. So that makes no sense. But they're trying to play on the emotion of people in stating that a picture is this or that,
1: I, I snickered a little bit there, not because of what you're saying, but when you brought up firing squad. I, we always, we all hear the, the lie that's been perpetrated for years and years and years. Of, oh, you know, whenever they have a firing squad, all the guys have blanks except for one guy, so that no one else. As someone who fires blanks, you know because there's no recoil when you're firing blanks, so next time someone tells you that lie, that whenever it's a firing squad, everybody's shooting blanks except for one guy, so no one knows who, that's a lie, because the guy with the one round would know, because he has recoil on his rifle, and none of the rest of them do, so don't perpetrate that lie any further through history, because that's just made up by, I think that is just something that was made up to make the family members of the guys who signed to the firing squad feel better, don't, there's absolutely no truth in that at all, because there's Anyone who's ever shot a rifle or a pistol with a blank knows that the recoil is completely different.
0: Well, it's like the old story of the M1 Grand and the Ping.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, they would just, the Germans would wait until they heard the Ping. Or the Japanese. Okay, yeah, maybe if they were 10 feet in front of each other, but when you're hundreds of yards away and you got thousands of firearms going off, you can't hear that damn Ping. No. Your head's too busy ringing. All you hear is ringing because your ears are going off. You got mortars flying over. You got grenades going off. You, you, you're on a front line with hundreds of other guys shooting simultaneously. You're not going to hear a ping from 50, 60, 70, 80 yards away. Maybe if there's just the two of you and no one else is shooting and you're in a building doing some urban combat, perhaps maybe then. But no, out in the jungle in a heavy firefight, no way. It's insane. That's just one of those Hollywood things.
0: It is. Well, again, you talk about Hollywood, and I think we (laughs) talked about this earlier, that Hollywood is known to take liberties with books Mm -hmm. and and that without knowing the full story, without really knowing, people will watch a movie and assume... That's gospel. That's Mm -hmm. what they did. That's what they wore. That's everything that happened. Well, no, not really, because actually, that's probably one one hundredth of what they actually did, one one hundredth of what they actually saw, and one one hundredth of the emotion that they actually experienced.
1: Well, not only that, but on a movie set in particular, you have one or two advisors then you have a group of people who don't know much. They know about making film. And, I, and I've and said this in the past. Here's all you need to know about how lazy Hollywood is. Back in the day, we made a couple of World War II movies. And in the World War II movies, you run an ammo. You say, hey, throw me a clip because you're using an M1. And 30 years later, you're watching a war movie. Guys are using M14s with box magazines. And in the movie, hey, throw me a clip. It's not a clip, but Hollywood is lazy. That is what they know, because that's what it was in World War II movies. And, yes, you have a technical advisor on the site, but after the movie's shot, it goes to sound. And you'll see this all the time, especially on TV. Two things I love. For some reason, police always carry an unloaded firearm, so every time they pull their Glock out, they cock it first. Okay, first off, police always have a round in the chamber. And two, I always love when they pull the Glock out, and the cocking noise they make is the sound of a hammer being pulled back on a revolver because the sound guy doesn't know. He, 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 he's just going to his folder of gun noises. Well, hey, that's the sound they all make. They all make a cocking noise. And the perfect example of this, and I don't know why it ever made it to film, but on the first episode of The Walking Dead, they set up a roadblock. This is before the zombie thing happens. And the sheriff looks at the deputy and says, Turn your safety off. He has a Glock, which has a trigger safety. He pushes the button, which was that technically the magazine release, but because Hollywood knows that, you know, they're used to seeing the manual safeties on revolvers and certain rifles, that, okay, well, for the sake of this, we'll have him push what would be the magazine release, but instead of his magazine falling out, okay, it's the safeties off. No, there is no manual safety on a Glock. It's part of the trigger housing. But that just goes to show Hollywood is by no means something to use as a research item. Exactly. Because if it was, then we all know from watching The Longest Day that everybody in European theater had Thompson submachine guns except for one guy, i.e. John Wayne, who uses M1 Garand as a crutch through the whole movie. All the rest of the people in that movie had Thompsons. Yes.
0: Oh, I know. It, it, it is horrible. You know, but the thing is it's the story. Yep. And you have to sometimes... We have a bad habit as reenactors. Mm-hmm. We pick apart that detail. But the story is, there are men mm-hmm. that gave everything on those beaches, on those drop zones. And if we spice it up a little bit, sadly, yeah, John Chu Public isn't going to know. We're going to know. Yep. But. If we don't do that, they won't care.
1: Yeah, it, we're too busy looking at the trees and still looking at the forest. Yeah. It'd be like if we're arborists, hey, that's the wrong tree. That tree wouldn't be in the... <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, and that's that's one of the worst things about you know being a living historian is so many people get caught up in the details of the production and not into the story. But with that being said, a lot of us take that same desire or thirst for authenticity and most of us put put that into our uniforms when we go out and do our events which is a good thing um i've said this, and not to be a dead horse i've said this on multiple podcasts the one thing we got to get away from as living historians if you're at an event and this drives me crazy you'll never meet somebody who will take you aside at an event and talk crap about your uniform not that they should but they'll happily take a picture of you and then post it on the internet talking about it because they're telephone tough guys keyboard tough guys instead of taking a sign and say, hey how long have you been doing this this is my first event okay cool then clearly you know you need to work on some stuff or if this is my third year okay clearly you need to work on some stuff exactly. and this tell is, them what to change
0: this is one of the things that gets me like you say these armchair warriors mm-hmm. they do not know the guy's financial situation mm-hmm. why he can or cannot afford the absolute correct uniform. They do not know the context of when a picture was taken. Yep. A perfect example, because of an argument with an internet troll over my boots, yep. one of his cronies delved into my pictures that were accessible mm-hmm. within that social media account and pulled it and posted it as if it was in the middle of the event. Yeah. No, it was in the morning before the event. And what I had on me was my food yeah. to eat. Yeah. But they assumed that was this, this was that. And it can be so horrible an experience that, I've had people say, well, we'll donate money for you to get the correct boots. Boots, for me, are not that easy. I wear a size 13 extra wide. That's like Shaquille O'Neal stuff. Practically, yes. (laughs) And I even had one of these internet trolls even imply, maybe you should get out of the hobby just because of boots. But what I had been noticing in pictures being posted other than boondockers, logging boots, boots that you would never expect in combat are showing up in pictures in combat. Yeah. And with that, it's like they didn't do this for the fun of it. If they're wearing a pair of boots like that that are almost laced up to their knee, Mm -hmm. yeah, maybe they were private purchase, but they were worn there.
1: The co-host of another podcast I do, his name's Dave, his grandfather was in the Pacific. And he um, brought a picture in. And if you would do this in an event, people would scream at you and yell at you and say that never happened but he has a picture of his grandfather in full uniform in the Pacific unfortunately the photo is not labeled what island wearing cowboy boots you
0: say that this was a few months ago on one of the islands one of the pilots from one of the marine squadrons when he returns from the flight taking off the government issue shoes is putting on calf fur skin cowboy boots Mm -hmm. on his plane's wing. Yep. If you look at one of the pictures of VMF 214 you got guys wearing tennis shoes in the picture and it's like where the heck did they get Basically, tennis shoes. Yep. There's always, we always want to use the excuse, well, we don't reenact the exception. I was
1: getting ready to say that. I've heard that so many times.
0: We reenact the norm. But sometimes you have to do the exception because of your own physical characteristics, or if we don't, that story gets lost.
1: I think one of the other things that a lot of the diehards tend to do is they, especially the ones who never served in active military, they think that the boot camp uniform manual code was the end all be all life, not realizing that usually once you got out of boot camp, especially when you got into the theater of war. Uniform codes lined up a little bit. Because when you're fighting for your life. They're not worried about whether or not you have. Your you know blouse tucked in properly. And all that. Yes in boot camp they do that. Just one. Because to teach you. um, The uniform code. But to teach you. um, Basically. What they try to do. And I've never served. So this is just through my. History and education. The reason they nitpick on those little things in boot camp is because if you can't follow the slightest little thing such as uniform code you're not going to follow the commands to the T well enough in the field to survive
0: exactly it's attention to detail Yeah, that little thing that you may think is nothing to me is a big thing but that gives me the skill that instead of just looking at you, I look around, I look beside, I'll notice something on the ground, I'm looking. It teaches me the power of observation. And with that, even in the hobby, if you approach someone the right way when they're doing something wrong, you don't make an enemy, you make a friend.
1: Well, not only that, but it instills confidence in the commander because he needs to assess somebody quickly. Exactly. I need to know that I want to give you a command. You need to take your platoon out, do this, do this, and do it, and do it right. But if you can't follow the simple commands as, once again, if you're in boot camp and you're trying to train, you're trying to figure out, okay, who's going to be our first lieutenant? Who's going to be our corporals? How are we going to discover which person can follow rules? Well, you have to... Use what you have available to you, i.e. uniform codes, PT and all that, because you're not out in the combat situation. So by using the smallest minute little details, if they can't get that minute little detail right, then how in the hell are they going to follow orders when it comes to keeping their men alive? You hit hit hit
0: the nail on the head. I tell people from my own experience in combat, you have to become a quick read of people Mm -hmm. because... Your life, their life, and others' lives depend on it. And in this program, when I pick someone to be platoon sergeant, to be squad leader, it is not as a figurehead. I see leadership. I see the traits, the bearing that a Marine would have in them and put them in that role. And... I believe in a lot of reenactment groups it's a bunch of good old boys oh that's dave we'll make him platoon sergeant oh that's tom we'll make him lieutenant and not know his true skill level
1: yeah and dave and tom are the ones that are talking amongst their friends when someone's trying to get across the logistics of the event of that day and a it- timely fashion, when you got 60, 70 guys standing around, and Tom and Dave are the ones not listening. They're over there grab-assing because they don't have leadership skills. Once again, we don't... We're not trying to fool anybody that were the real military, and outside of the logistics sides of getting the play of the day done, the rank means absolutely nothing. But once again, when you have that many guys around, you have the rank because you know that that person can get that part of the play done to the best that we can do it in a situation. Because we're not trained actors. And yes, there are past military personnel in reenacting, but a large of us don't have that experience. But once again, you have to have the rank in order to get the job done. Or it's just going to be a giant cluster and no one's going to listen. Exactly.
0: I try with my men to give them what was done to me. When I was a young corporal in Lebanon, I had a gunnery sergeant that had survived the meat grinder of Kason. He pulled me aside and said, I reminded him of when he was my age. So he took me under his wing. He schooled me on leadership in combat, leadership of men that I knew his job. As a corporal, to know a guttery sergeant's job. And through my career, I applied that leadership, going to wars, going on hazardous deployments, that it gave me the ability to deal with adversity. But in the reenacting community, you do get groups of individuals who think that by experiencing an event, they're going to miraculously experience the same emotion as that World War II veteran, when, no, I hate to tell you, you're not.
1: I think the most that you may be able to experience... Is how bad it sucks being a uniform in 90 degree weather. How bad it sucks to run and fall in a ant mound, or have sand fall down your pants, or getting blisters on your feet. Because basically, the old saying is, you don't know a man until you walk a mile in his shoes. That's that's pretty much all we're doing. Is we're we're literally walking a mile in his shoes. We got blisters. We know what it's like to wear the hot uniform. And eat a reproduction version of K-Rations, but that's about as far, and sleep on the ground and under a seven-year-old tent and wool blankets, but that's about as far as it goes. We're we're experiencing the, we're experiencing 2.5% of the suck of living it, but that's just the living outside for a weekend and wearing the uniforms and carrying the heavy rifles and, you know, getting in one grand thumbs and burning ourselves on the barrel bars, but other than that, that's about as deep as it's going to get.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, we've had discussion with groups about how authentic you can get. And the consensus is literally no more than 60%. And that's like what you say, that's the suck, that's the food, that's the sleeping. Beyond that, for you to experience that remaining 40% 40% or 30%, let's say, you're going to have to go to actual combat and go to war and put your life on the line and know that there is someone out there going to try to kill you. That is what has you cannot feel in reenacting.
1: And that is a gift from God because no one should experience that 40%. Oh, no. There's men and women who sacrifice their lives and go and enlist so that the rest of us don't have to experience that 40%. And thank God we as reenactors, at least those of us without any real combat experience, will never have to experience the visual, the smell, and the psychological damage done by that 40%. And you shouldn't want that.
0: One of my own experiences, one of my jobs... When I retired, I was working. going to go to work in an adult intensive care unit. The director asked me, can you handle death? I said, well, I had four friends I went to basic training with who were killed all in the same day. And one even died in my presence. And my oldest son was killed I think I can handle it.
1: Well, Gunny, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for everything you do for this program. And um, why don't you give the name and the rank of your son, and we'll just dedicate this to him.
0: That'd be wonderful. His full name was Sergeant Christopher Taylor Munro, United States Army. He was born... December 3rd, 1985. And he was killed October 25th, 2005.
1: And I know because i seen it today. I'm not sure if that's when the display started. But your son's shadow box is proudly displayed in the lobby of the National Museum of the Pacific War in Fredericksburg, Texas.
0: Exactly. I like to say... That was the last blanket that was ever placed on him, the American flag.
1: Thank you for everything, sir. Pleasure. I'm honored to meet you this weekend. It's been a pleasure as well. Thank you for everything.